Revelation, and we're going to be looking tonight at chapter 13. We'll be looking at the first half of this chapter, verses 1 through 9. And what we're looking at tonight is a description of what we believe it will be the Antichrist. A lot of talk about the Antichrist, even in sometimes secular circles, a lot of interest, a lot of speculation. Who is he? Who, you know, where is he? Where will he come from? The Bible does talk about this individual that will rise up at the end of time and really take on the characteristics and be empowered by Satan himself. I want to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us tonight as we take a look at this passage. And uh, let me do that and then we'll get started. Father, we do thank you for your word which reveals truth and revelation to us. What an amazing thing your scriptures are, Lord, even written thousands of years ago, and yet they speak right into today. Not only are they relevant in our hearts and for our lives, but God, even declaring things before they come to pass. Lord, there's none that can do that but you. You're the only one who exists outside of time and is able to see the beginning from the end. You are indeed the Alpha and the Omega. And so we thank you, Lord, for these revelations that you've given to us. We pray that you would speak to us tonight, Lord, and instruct our hearts, Lord, these are truths, important truths that we should know, but also, Lord, we ask that you would give us a sense of application tonight, Lord. What do we do with this truth? How should we be living our lives in light of these things? So speak to us tonight, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, while you're holding your, your place there in Revelation 13, please turn with me also to Second Thessalonians. I actually want to read from there first tonight. We will be studying Revelation 13, but if you'll turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul talks about this individual, the Antichrist. There's some other names for him, the lawless one, the son of perdition. And uh, the Apostle Paul refers and references this same individual. We find his, find his reference in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want to just quote from that passage, and then that will kind of be a, serve as a backdrop for us as we look at the, at the passage in Revelation. I'm going to start there in Second Thessalonians 2. I'm going to begin in verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Notice verse 7, Paul says, The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's not that evil is waiting for this end time. Evil is already present, and this spirit of Antichrist already at work. Paul says a mystery. We don't understand all the workings of evil, but we certainly see the, the results of it. And all of us would testify that there is much evil in the world, and certainly there are spiritual dark forces at work. We don't completely understand them, and, and yet Paul says that there's coming a day when that which is restraining will be taken away. So even though we see much evil in the world, there is still restraint. 
Satan is not allowed yet to just completely have his way in the earth. The Bible says there is one that is restraining. I believe it's the Holy Spirit. Many believe that it's the Holy Spirit ministering through the life of the church, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus did say concerning the church that we would be the salt of the earth, a preserving force in the earth. And certainly the Holy Spirit is working in the earth through the life of the church. And that's why many believe that come the rapture, when the church is taken away at the very beginning of the, you know, the, the time of tribulation, a seven-year period, that that is when this restraint will be lifted and evil will begin a whole new level of intensity. And this son of perdition, this lawless one, will be revealed. We've, you know through history there have been many who have certainly been empowered and, in, uh, you know, um, enabled by Satan. In fact, the Apostle John, not only in Revelation, but in his epistle, in 1 John 2.18, he says this, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So this spirit of Antichrist is already existing in the world. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And as again, as you look through history, I mean, probably the most uh, recent historical figure that we can all identify would be, say, Adolf Hitler. I mean, I think everyone would acknowledge, wow. I mean, he had all the markings of being an antichrist. And certainly he was, you know, driven by an evil force. And I'm sure Satan was involved in that deception and in that whole work of, and persecution and ho the horrible things that happened during that time. But there is one that is coming that will be even worse than anything that the earth has seen because the restraints are going to be completely removed. And you can imagine the kind of evil that will be unleashed. We looked last time we were together on Wednesday night when I was in town. It's been a few weeks. But we remember we looked at Revelation 12 where it talked about the dragon, Satan, being cast down to the earth, very angry, knowing that his time is short, and he really begins to wage war upon the earth. Well, now what we'll look at, and you can turn with me now back to Revelation 13, we'll see Satan working through this individual known as the Antichrist that Paul spoke of. Many, uh, there are many, you'd be surprised how many references there are. The book of Daniel speaks quite a bit about an individual the, who, we, who we believe is referenced to the Antichrist. As I mentioned, John in his epistle, also here in the book of Revelation, the Apostle Paul references him, as we just read. Jesus spoke of him, talking about the desolation, abomination of desolation, referencing what the Antichrist would ultimately do. So there's quite a bit of instruction about who he is and what he will be like, and that's what we'll look at here tonight. Revelation 13 gives a pretty vivid description of him. And I have eight characteristics that I see in just these first nine verses concerning the Antichrist, and I'd like just to go through these with you, and we'll work together. Starting in verse 1, the first thing that we notice about the Antichrist is that he's going to be a world leader. This is not going to be some obscure individual. This is going to be someone that rises to world prominence. Look at verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea. This is John describing a vision. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a, bla a blasphemous name. Now, this sounds a lot like the dragon that was described there in chapter 12, but it's different. This is now a beast, not the dragon. The devil has been referenced as the dragon, but he also had seven heads and ten crowns. And so now this, this one that's coming is, is obviously empowered by him, but he is also going to be someone of great authority in the earth. These seven heads, uh, there's a lot of different ideas about what it represents, but the, actually the book of Revelation tells us later in chapter 17 that the seven heads are seven mountains. And mountains oftentimes in the scriptures depict a, a place of rulership or authority. Some believe that the seven heads represent the seven world empires. Uh, if you were to go back in history, you would find kind of seven or at least six world powers and one to come. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media Persia, Greece, 
and then the Roman Empire. Since the Roman Empire, there's not really been another world power that has dominated the world. That would be six, but this seventh one will be this coming world power, this world dictator, this world government that will rise up in the last days in this time of tribulation, these seven heads. So this, this, this being, Satan, empowering him, he kind of represents all of the kingdoms of the earth. And he has ten horns. Now what we believe, not just from this passage, but in other passages that reference him, we believe that this, will, this is signifying what will come during the time of tribulation, that there will be a ten-nation confederation. That sometime in the future there are going to be ten kings who kind of align themselves, ten governments, ten nations that come together and join as one. And this, this Antichrist will be the head of that ten-nation confederation. Now if you'll hold your place, and I'm going to have to turn, bounce you around a little bit tonight just so you can kind of get the picture. If you'll hold your place there, turn with me back to the book of Daniel chapter 2. Where are these ten nations going to come from? Who, who are they going to be? We, we believe that they are going to come out of some uh, revived Roman Empire. We think that the, 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 the Roman Empire is going to be in some fashion revived. It won't be identical to the Roman Empire, but it will in some ways uh, resemble the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire really dominated much of the earth, but you remember it was, of course, headquartered there in Rome. Western Europe was its base, and we think perhaps there, in, there will be a, a, a European Union of Nations that this Antichrist will rise up out of. That's why the whole European Union is of, is of great interest to Bible scholars and those who study prophecy. I mean, just a hundred years ago, there, there was no union in, in Europe. I mean, in fact, that's just been recent history, that the nations of Europe have come together and formed. They have the same currency now, the euro, and they've come together. Now, there are more than ten nations currently in the European Union, but I wouldn't be surprised if in time we see ten, ten nations that would eventually maybe rise to the prominence of the union. You've seen, I'm sure, just in the headlines of late, just the trouble that's going on in the nation of Greece. They're having economic trouble and riots and protests. And the, and the, the other nations in Europe are having to come together. And what are we going to do? Because they share our currency and they're affecting our economies as well. So it's in these troubled times often that individuals come to power. During times of crisis, during times of uncertainty, an individual rises up and has the solutions and offers answers. And people rally to that kind of strength and leadership during time of crisis. So we certainly have a setting for something like this to take place. We haven't seen it you know, completely come into clear view yet, but we do have the scriptures that tell us something of what's coming. You may remember this story Daniel interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel revealed the dream to him and interpreted the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar saw this being with a head of gold and a chest of silver and a waist of bronze and legs of iron and feet and ten toes mixed clay and iron. And Daniel interpreted this, prophet, this, this dream to be the, the world powers that were in, currently in existence, Babylon was the head at that time. What would come later would be the media Persia, that would be the chest of silver, then would come the bronze, that would be the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire represented the, the two uh, iron legs, and then a, an empire not yet, hap, not yet arrived would be this, these feet and ten toes. Let's look at that. And that'll help us understand a little bit about the ten horns that we're studying in Revelation. I'm in now uh, Daniel chapter 2. Look with me. Where am I? 40, 41. Daniel interpreting this image. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron... The kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. Now remember, iron was the future Roman Empire. 
just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So this kingdom that is represented by the ten toes is ultimately the kingdom that God is going to come and destroy and establish his kingdom. It will be the very last earthly kingdom. And you can see that it has this uh, description of iron and clay mixed in. So something of the Roman influence, something of that Roman Empire, the, the legs of iron, are going to be involved in this ten king uh, confederation. And this is why we believe that the Antichrist would ultimately, we would look to this potential European Union, the clay and iron mixed together, and that kind of describes Europe, doesn't it? I mean, they're, they're, they're joined, but yet they're still very separate and distinct in their, their, you know, their cultures and their, some of their languages. So, again, we can't, we can't be crystal clear on these things. And let me just say that there are a lot of other views. I'm giving you what I, I believe is, is the, uh, the best represented view, the most, one that makes most sense to me, the one that we uh, see most often that Bible scholars would would agree on, but there are some other views. You remember the Roman Empire was not just Western Europe. The Roman Empire actually extended out into the Middle East and even, you know, as you know, some of the as far east as you know Turkey and obviously Jerusalem was under Roman rule at one time. So there are some that even believe it might even be a league of Arab nations that would come together to form uh, because that, that, they were actually part of Rome's conquest during their, you know, their peak time. But that's, again, not, uh, that's not embraced by many, but it is speculated by some. But I think rather the, the Western European Union, that, that in itself seems to be such a miracle. For so many years there was nothing like that existed, but now, all of a sudden, now Israel is back in the land, and now... These nations have come together in Europe. It sure seems like the table is getting set for an end-time play. All right, back to Revelation chapter 13. This Antichrist is going to be a world leader. He's going to be one. He's going to come up from this ten-nation confederation. Uh, the book of Daniel in another place, you don't need to turn to it, but it gives us some other uh, references on this. Uh, Daniel 7 verse 8 talks about this, these horns, and he says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. I'm going to ask one of the ushers to help uh, this little girl maybe get placed. It's a little bit of a distraction. Got any ushers out here tonight? <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay, so um, Daniel 7 verse 8 says this, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. So Daniel gives a little more description about this rise to power of this little horn amongst the ten. He will actually uproot three of the other kings to establish his rule. So we, we, we believe that these things are yet to take place, but these are the kinds of things that are already starting to kind of take shape. The Antichrist is going to be a world leader. He's also going to be empowered by Satan, the second characteristic that we see. Look at verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, the dragon... That's a reference to Satan. Gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. These animal references have also referenced some of the world powers of the past. 
And it's as though this last world power will kind of encompass all of the characteristics of all the world empires and he will be the most dominant. But he's going to be empowered by Satan. You remember Jesus was tempted by Satan. And Satan said, I will give you, the you see all the kingdoms of the earth, I will give these things to you. These things are mine and I will give them to you if you will bow down and worship me. And of course, Jesus said, you know, thou shalt worship the Lord God only and rejected that temptation. But he didn't contest that Satan it was, in fact, the, the ruler of world powers. God has given Satan that, that place in the world. Satan really does rule and manipulate much of the kingdoms of the earth. Now, God's kingdom exists as well in the, in the heart of his people. And the, those kingdoms clash in the earth, don't they? And we war, we war not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers, the Bible says. So Satan has the authority to entrust the kingdoms of the earth. He, he offered it to Jesus. He will give it to this one Antichrist in the future. And he will be empowered by Satan. He will receive Satan's offer to rule and he will worship Satan and he will rise to great power. The third thing that we'll notice here is that this Antichrist is going to be healed from a deadly wound. Look with me at verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Something is going to happen to this, this individual. He is, you know, we can't know for sure what this reference is, but it sounds like he's going to suffer some type of an assassination attempt. But he's going to survive it. But it's going to be something of a miracle. I mean, it's going to be so, uh, almost as if he's come back from the dead. This assassination is going to be uh, the type of thing that surely would have killed him, should have killed him, and yet he lives. And you can imagine how that would even catapult a world leader into greater prominence. I mean, that would draw, draw even greater attention to this individual. You know, when, when there's someone's assassinated or even an assassination attempt on a world leader, it makes news. And it, you know, attracts a lot of attention. This might be one of the very events that actually brings this leader up to world attention. He's going to have some kind of an event take place in his life that's going to be, uh, suffer some type of mortal wound, and yet he's going to be healed of it. It's going to, it says, as if it had been mortally wounded. So he won't be completely killed, but it's as if he were, and yet he will be healed. And this is going to draw the attention of the world. They're going to marvel at this individual, this beast. So he will be healed from a deadly wound. The fourth thing that we see here concerning the Antichrist is he will be worshipped. Look at verse 4. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, in, they'll be worshiping the dragon, Satan. The whole world is going to worship the beast. And indirectly, because they're worshiping this, this, this individual who is completely empowered by Satan, they're actually worshiping Satan. It won't be, you know, Satan worship directly, but it will be, they will be worshiping Satan indirectly as they worship the beast because he will be empowered by Satan. You remember Judas, when he betrayed Christ, it said that Satan filled his heart. It is possible that Satan can actually come and begin to possess and manipulate a man and his will. And this, of course, this is, these, these are, these men, this man is, is completely yielded to it, desires it, wants it. And Satan will be filling him and directing him and they'll be worshiping him because Satan is going, he's not going to be an ordinary guy. He's going to be somebody with some great, um, you know, charisma. And Satan is going to be using him and the, the whole world is going to come and worship him. I mean, he is going to look like some type of savior. The fifth thing that we see in verses 5 and 6, he is going to be a blasphemer. He's going to be a blasphemer. 
Blasphemy means he is going to speak against God. Look at verse 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months, three and a half years. He'll rise to power and he'll have a three and a half year, we believe the latter half of the tribulation. He'll, that's, he'll be coming into power the first half. He'll establish his power and he'll have three and a half years of reign. Verse 6, then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. He is going to be probably an individual of great oratory skill. He's going to be someone that charms his audience. He's going to be naturally gifted this way, and then Satan is going to empower him, and he's going to, when he finally comes into power, he's going to blaspheme, he's going to speak against God. And he's going to uh, deny not only God, his name, his people, and even those in heaven. He's going to, it says, those who dwell in heaven. I, I wonder what that means. My thought is, he'll even badmouth the prophets of old and talk about the saints and those that have gone on to be with the Lord. He'll completely discredit them. And he's going to speak great, proud things. Again, Daniel gives us a little more reference to this. In Daniel 7, verse 8, it says that he will be speaking pompous words. He's going to be very arrogant, very proud, and he'll speak against God. He will be a blasphemer. The sixth characteristic referenced here is he will, he will persecute God's people. Look at verse 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Once he comes into power... He is going to persecute the people of God. It says that he's going to persecute the saints. Now, if we believe that the church is going to be raptured, caught up with the Lord before the beginning of the tribulation, then what saints is he going to be persecuted if, in fact, the church is raptured in the presence of the Lord? Well, as we've studied in some of the prior chapters, there's going to be uh, some conversion taking place during this tribulation time. There are going to be many coming to Christ. Once these events begin to happen, many are going to be turning their hearts to the Lord. In fact, even many of the Jews in Israel are going to begin to recognize and see that Jesus is their Savior. And the Bible talks about, and we'll look at, there's some more reference, the 144,000, those that are from the tribe of, of Israel, and they will be converted and they will also be witnessing for others. Remember the, the two witnesses that we study, they will be declaring and witnessing concerning Christ. Many, there are going to be many saints, but once the Antichrist comes to power, he is going to persecute them. He is going to make war against them. And the Lord is going to allow this to happen. It says here, you'll notice, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's going to be in great power and authority. But in the middle there, it says he's, he's going to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Well, it doesn't mean that he's going to be able to overcome their faith or to steal somehow their salvation, but he is going to be able to, to overcome them in this life, in the earth. And that's not the first time. I mean, there are times when persecution rises up and Christians suffer martyrdom, don't they? And that is it, that they are overcome in this life, but they are not overcome in eternity. The Bible says in the book of Psalms 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This overcoming is in this life. He will make war against the saints. He will persecute and he will martyr many, but they precious in the sight of the Lord. They will go and be with the Lord. But this Antichrist will definitely pursue and God will give him this authority for these three and a half years. The seventh characteristic that's mentioned for us here is that he will be a deceiver. Look at verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Those who do not come to Christ, those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, 
they are going to be completely enamored by this man. It's hard to imagine that someone with this type of agenda and this type of an evil you know, heart empowered by Satan could deceive so many. As, as you know, recently I had a, my wife and I had an opportunity and some of you from the church, we had a, took a trip to Israel. One of the last places that we stopped uh, before we came home was the Holocaust Museum. And it's quite a, it's quite a, quite a museum and you, you walk through, uh, it takes, you know, I think we were there for about an hour and a half, a couple hours. You could have spent really a couple days there. They have so much to see. But they show you how Europe was persuaded, how the whole Holocaust emerged and came into existence. And you hear testimonies from some of the Holocaust survivors. They've, they've videotaped them. And it's, it's almost, it's hard to understand how could, how could these things happen? In fact, that was one of the, the, the things that many of the Jews who stayed in their communities said, we couldn't believe that those things could happen here. We couldn't. These were our neighbors, our friends. We could never imagine that they could be caught up in this deception that somehow would turn them on their very friends and neighbors and those who lived in their community. But it happened. And there's no question in my mind that it was a demonic deception that moved through that time. Hitler being the the one who brought voice to that deception. And remember, Germany was in a very difficult economic time. It was just after World War I, and they were really humiliated as a nation and suffering economic struggle. And, and Hitler kind of rose, brought back their national pride, and the people were, were enamored with him in the beginning. And this deception spread not only through Germany, but all through Europe all the various countries began to turn on not only the Jews, but others that were eventually persecuted. So we actually have in history, uh, very recent history, something like this that has taken place. And when people are deceived, they are deceived. Uh, and the Bible, that's why I referenced before we got started in Second Thessalonians, and I'm going to go back there in a minute and we'll close there tonight, because I want to talk about deception, how it happens, how it comes, why it happens. Hard to believe that it could happen, but it will. This individual is going to come at just the right time. He's going to solve just the right problems. We know from not from this passage, but from other passages, that one of the things he's going to do is he's going to create a peace treaty with Israel. Boy, I wonder how many world problems could be solved today if we could have peace in Israel, between Israel and the Arab, Arab world. Wouldn't that change the dynamics of the world as we know it? Terrorism is something that's very real to us just you know, just, I mean, today in our news, right? A bombing attempt just days ago from, you know, in New York City, Times Square. These things are real. And these things find their roots in the conflict in the Middle East. What if someone could solve that? I mean, really solve it from all appearances. This individual would be a superstar. Overnight. Not only that, but what about some of the eco economic struggles that the world is starting to feel and reel from? What if someone could come and solve those problems for us and lead the world in, a, in an economic recovery? I tell you, people would, would rally behind that kind of a leader. Now, I'm just, I, I don't know who the Antichrist is. And I, as I said, there's all kinds of speculation. I don't think it's these scriptures have been given to us so that we would speculate. I think they're given so that when they begin to come to pass, then those that are here will see and know and be warned. But I do believe that it's my personal opinion that this Antichrist is alive today. 
He's not yet on the scene, but He exists. I think we're living in the end times. It seems to me that the stage is set. And, and you know, I mean, just in the last few years, just in the last couple of years, maybe it's me, maybe I'm, you know, maybe as I'm studying Revelation, maybe I'm starting to see things, you know, in the shadows, but it just feels like things have changed of late. I think maybe this whole economic crisis... It just feels like we're moving towards something. And so many things seem to be in place. There's a lot of signs that we have. I mean, Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, but you do have signs and you can notice them. I mean, just really, just when my grandfather was alive, some of the things that we see today couldn't even have happened then. There was no European Union. There was no Israel, state of Israel, and the Jewish people having their own nation. There was no Middle East conflict as we know it today. Some of the prophecies about, you know, the whole world, talking about, remember the the two witnesses, when they're killed, the whole world will see their bodies. That wasn't even possible 50 years ago. How How could the whole world be anywhere at once? Today, via satellite, Very easy for the whole world to see things. I mean, we have a lot of signs today that seem to indicate these prophecies could be fulfilled in our lifetime. And just 50, 100 years ago, impossible. Couldn't even imagine how they could be fulfilled. But today, it's hard to to imagine how they're not being fulfilled. It seems like some of these things are happening right before our eyes. Well, the final thing that I want you to see here in, in tonight in Revelation, and then like I said, I want to close in Second Thessalonians, but the final characteristic of this Antichrist is he will be defeated. Look at verse 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. This one that's going to take captive, he's going to be taken captive himself. This one who kills with the sword, he will also be killed with the sword. This is the patience and the faith of the saints. Saints, don't be discouraged. He has but a season to reign, and but his day is set. And God will ultimately bring the victory. He will be defeated. Let me just quickly review. Characteristics of the Antichrist. He will be a world leader. He will be empowered by Satan. He will be healed from a deadly wound. He will be worshipped. He will be a blasphemer. He will persecute God's people. He will be a deceiver. And he will ultimately be defeated. This is Revelation 13's description of this one that we call the Antichrist. Okay, I want to close tonight if you'll turn back with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to give us a little bit of application tonight. Second Thessalonians 2, and I, I read you that passage, verses... Uh, let me find it. Uh, 3 through 12. I want to just focus here in, in my closing on verses 10 through 12 talking again about this Antichrist and with all unrighteousness, deception among those... Listen, deception among those who perish. Why? Why are they going to be deceived? Because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And verse 11, And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. In verse 12, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There is a price to pay when we reject truth. There is a judgment that comes upon those who reject the truth concerning Jesus Christ. These, they, these individuals are opened up for deception because 
they have hardened their heart against the truth. It's kind of like you get a blind spot. If you're unwilling to acknowledge the truth concerning Christ, then it's all like your vision is permanently blurred. And actually God then sends delusion so that you are vulnerable to believe a lie. I am amazed at what some people believe. Intelligent people. Some of these movie stars, the things that they believe (laughs) and the things that they do. But the simple message of Jesus Christ, oh no, you know, that's, that's, that's foolishness. Isn't that what the Bible said, that some would stumble over the gospel because it would just seem to be foolish to them? Too, too simple? Too easy? I mean, what some of these brilliant scientific men believe concerning evolution. We had Charlie Campbell come out here a few Sundays back and talk about you know, what you have to, to deny to actually embrace the idea of evolution. Yet they can't believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Oh no, that can't be true. I reject that. And then they believe crazy things where there's no proof, no evidence. And yet, because they've rejected the truth, they've become vulnerable to deception. And so how important it is that we not harden our hearts when the Holy Spirit speaks to us. That we not pick and choose passages of Scripture that we just choose not to believe. Or that doesn't apply to me. Or I'm not sure if that's all, if the Bible's really the Word of God. When you begin to challenge the truth of God's revelation, you basically put yourself in a vulnerable position and open yourself up for deception. An important point here in verse 12 It tells why they didn't believe the truth. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is often the reason people reject truth, is because they don't want to change their ways. The book of John, it says that the light, Jesus, the light came into the world, but men rejected the light and preferred darkness. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They didn't want to come to the light because they didn't want their deeds to be exposed by the light. They didn't want to change. They liked the way they were living. And people will rationalize all kinds of things because they don't want, they they prefer evil. They prefer deeds of darkness. They want to continue in their lifestyle and they don't want to be accountable to a God. They don't want to confess that they need a Savior. I'm okay. Leave me alone. And they harden their hearts against the truth of Jesus Christ. And God then sends delusion. The book of Romans talks about individuals who harden their heart against the truth. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It's a fool who says there is no God. The Bible says when you hear the gospel, when do, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. You know, sometimes people, I've heard this, well, I'm not ready. In other words, I don't want to change yet. You, you, and you talk about Jesus, you talk about coming to salvation, you tell them the truth. Well, let me think about it. The Bible says don't, don't wait. When you hear truth, Give place to it. Respond to it. And it's not just unbelievers that are deceived. Unfortunately, there are times even when, when believers can be deceived and can begin to kind of trick themselves and believe that they're okay. God sees and knows. And He wants us to walk. God's not asking us to walk in perfection because we can't. We are sinners. But God is asking us to to walk in truth and in honesty. And the Bible says if we sin, we have an advocate. And if we what? Confess our sin, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. But if we deny, if we say we have no sin, we lie against the truth. There's something about the truth of God's Word that not only saves, not only rescues, but it also it acts as a prevention to deception. Really, it's the light of God's Word. Your Word is a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. We need His truth. There's a time coming when the whole world is going to be caught up in deception. And it's because they didn't love the truth, and it's because they preferred their evil deeds. Do you love the truth tonight? Is God's Word precious to you? Do you understand why we teach it? Do you understand why we encourage you to read it and to put it into your heart? Hide it in your heart. It's truth. I don't know anything like it. I don't know anything else to give you. I can't think of anything better to be teaching on. But the truth of God's Word. It's life. It's, it's salvation. It's light. And, it, and it, it preserves us from all these things that will one day come upon the earth. But not only upon the earth, but even upon individuals. Those that reject truth, there is a judgment that will ultimately come and all men will ultimately give an account and stand before the Lord and, and answer, how did you handle the truth that you were given? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for truth we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for even the book of Revelation, Lord, and these warnings concerning the Antichrist, this, this one who is going to rise up with the power of, empowered by Satan. Lord, I don't know, as Christians, I don't know when these things are going to happen. I don't know if... if We'll be here long enough to see these things revealed. I don't know exactly how things will play out, but I know this, that I want to be sober-minded. I want to be alert. I want to be informed in your word. These things are worthwhile to know. They help us discern the times. They help us understand the age in which we live. And I'm thinking of that passage in Peter where, where he said, knowing these things, how then should we be living? I'm paraphrasing, Lord, but basically that's the idea. How should you then live knowing the season, knowing these things that are coming? Should it affect the way we live? And Lord, I, that's a, something of a sobering word tonight and a little bit of a, Oh, I don't know, a little bit of a challenge, I guess, Lord. Even in my own heart, I'm, I'm reminded of what, what's really important and what I need to be doing with my life. I need to be gaining truth. I need to be teaching truth. I need to be proclaiming the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that you will stir our hearts tonight, that these things will go down and just become something of our foundation and our walk with you, that it will encourage us to love you and to be thankful for your grace in our lives. And Lord, I also want to pray and give an opportunity for those that may be here that need to respond to this truth. And so as our heads are bowed, church, I, I just want to give this invitation. I, I do it every service, but I don't ever want to I don't ever want someone to come and not have the opportunity to give their heart to the Lord. If you're here tonight and, and you don't know the Lord, you've not yet responded to the truth concerning Jesus Christ. But you've heard something tonight that's, that's kind of awoken you spiritually and, and you're, you're in your heart, you're saying, I, I, I need Jesus. I don't want to be deceived. I, I want my name written in the Lamb's book of life. I need to come to the Lord. If you're here tonight and you need to come to the Lord, I want to pray for you. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're, you're coming back to the Lord. I want to pray for you too. Maybe you've been away. Maybe you've been kind of that wayward child and you've come back and all of a sudden this, things are going on in the world, things are going on in your life and you're realizing, I need the Lord. I need to be walking closer to Him. I need to be with Him. I need to come back to Jesus. Maybe you need to rededicate your life tonight. If you're here tonight and you need to come to the Lord and invite Him into your life for the first time, or you want to rededicate your life to the Lord, 
Would you raise your hand where you are tonight? I'd like to pray for you. Anyone here tonight need to come to the Lord? God bless you. You as well. Anyone else, these two that have responded over here on my left? God bless you, sir. Let me pray for those that have responded. Anyone else, just before I pray. God bless you, sir. And you as well, ma'am. Lord, your word is, is clear concerning its warning. But it is also very clear concerning your mercy. And I want those that have responded tonight, Lord, I want their hearts to be encouraged. Yes, there is warning. Yes, there is consequence to rejecting truth. But there is also great blessing and joy in responding to the truth. And so for those that have responded, Father, I pray that you would cleanse them of their sin through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I pray that you would assure their hearts that you love them and that you are delighted to save them tonight. That you are welcoming, Lord, for the first time. You're welcoming them into the family. If they're coming home, you're welcoming them back into the family and welcoming them, bringing them back just like the prodigal son. Wrap your arms around them tonight, Lord, with your love and with your grace. Cleanse them, forgive them, and give them a fresh start tonight and fill them with your Holy Spirit. May this be the beginning, Lord, of a whole new walk and life in the light and in the truth. And Lord, for us all, these are, these are not times to be playing around with our spiritual lives. This is a season to be sober. This is a season to be serious in our walk and to, to walk in the fullness of what you've called us to, Lord. And we trust you tonight. We, we can't do it on our own strength, Lord. We need you. We need your word, we need your spirit, and we need one another. So God, I pray that you would work in each heart tonight to strengthen and to encourage and to bring us into that place that you've called us to. Thank you tonight, Lord, that everybody that responded in their heart, in truth, Lord, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. They are not vulnerable to deception, but they are now children of the light. Bless them and encourage them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you 